Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello everybody, this is Dr. Casey Patrick. Welcome again to another episode of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Joining me today are uh, Cardiac Coordinator Brad Ward, and on the board today is Kevin Crocker. And we are going to dive right into part two of our CHF series. And in the first half, we talked about kind of dividing CHF up into more useful sort of subgroups. And we talked about acute pulmonary edema. We talked about chronic volume overload. We talked about cardiogenic shock. I think the most useful way to think about acute pulmonary edema is going to be to think about our sink analogy that we discussed. We want to turn the faucet off when the water is overflowing. It's going to be turn off our preload. We want to unclog the drain, open the drain. So open the drain will be reducing afterload. And then unclogging the drain is going to be using our plunger which is BiPAP. Talked a little bit about getting the pail out and dumping the water out with Lasix. We'll hit that again uh, later on in this podcast. So keep those things in mind. Acute pulmonary edema, chronic CHF, cardiogenic shock. Keep those divisions in mind and know that in this podcast primarily, we are going to be talking strictly about acute pulmonary edema. When we think about acute pulmonary edema, Brad, what are some of the treatments, again, that come to mind? And we hit on several of those. So we're going to give, first of all, support the airway with BiPAP. We're going to use nitro higher dose than normal nitro. Our protocol was to give two tabs sublingually, which is double what we gave for our cardiac patients, chest pain patients. So really hit them with nitro and then supportive care after that. And then when we get to the hospital, you know, we get in the emergency department, what's the kind of the first drug that comes out of everybody's mouth? Everybody runs to get Lasix. Runs to get, runs to get Lasix. So we're not going to, you know, BiPAP is, don't want BiPAP to get forgotten in this discussion. You know, BiPAP saves lives in acute pulmonary edema patients. So we don't want to forget that. Um, but again, this is going to be focused on nitrates and acute pulmonary edema patients. We just made a protocol change here at MCHD. So we're trying to speak in the proper tense before and after. So bear with us as we go along. Um, if you're interested in the mechanism of action of nitro, Google away some CGMP and myosin chains and nitric oxide. So we're not going to. We're not going to delve into the uh, the pharmacology too much there, other than to remember that at lower doses we get preload reduction, but to get afterload reduction we have to have to pump that dose up, and that's really going to be the the point of this kind of the the foundation of this this discussion. So let's go back to our acute pulmonary edema patient that we talked about in section one. Again, how do they look? So this is the one you walk in and say sick, right? Yep. So it's the one that's tripoding, diaphoretic, tachypnic. You walk in with the with the non-invasive mask in your hand. And, you know, we are moving here at MCHD to IV nitroglycerin dosing for these folks because we really feel like that's going to be the best way for these patients to get quick, large doses. So your next question, if you're not in our service and you're a listener out there, is going to be what? How much nitro is that? Yeah, right. What are you going to set your drip at? And there's actually um, good quality evidence to support administration of IV nitro, not in drip form, but in bolus form. Levy's group at Wayne State in Detroit published a retrospective review, Journal of Emergency Medicine, uh, almost 400 acute pulmonary edema patients, and they found that intermittent IV nitroglycerin bolus dosing reduced length of stay, reduced ICU admissions, and reduced uh, intubation and mortality in patients when comparing IV nitro bolus to both a continuous drip and drip 
plus bolus. So if you closely parse their data and say, well, Dr. Patrick, the nitro patients were sicker than the bolus patients. Probably have a point there, but I think that in general, what we would be most concerned about and what I was most concerned about before I delve into this was hypotension in these patients. So if we give somebody an IV nitro bolus dose, are we going to have a bunch of 60 over 40 when we arrived at the hospital? And importantly, they found a similar incidence of hypotension and renal dysfunction between all groups. And it was actually fairly low, only 2%. Um, so this seems to be an ideal solution for the pre-hospital environment, right? We want to get these people high doses of nitro and we want to get it to them quickly. So I, I think an IV bolus dose solves both of those problems. So when you say quickly, are we a denizen quickly or? Um, again, I don't think we want to slam it by any means, but it is not, it is IV push. For, again, listeners out there that weren't in our recent uh, CE session, our protocol changed from two months ago being a combination of sublingual nitroglycerin and paste nitroglycerin. So, you know, why did we make this change in the first place? Topical nitro is time of onset 30 to 40 minutes, likely longer in sick, poorly perfusing, clamp down, diaphoretic, acute pulmonary edema patients. So we took paste nitro, topical nitro out of the equation. And secondly, I mean, how many times have you had the topical nitro fall off? I mean, the patients are diaphoretic. You end up at the hospital and you see it laying in the floor. You've taped it seven times and it, you know, it never, uh, never, nothing's. Sometimes um, it gets in their hair. I don't think it does much from there. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's much hair uptake. And then, you know, as far as sublingual goes, you know, when you open the, these patients mouths, what do you see in there? Undissolved tablets. Right. It's a desert, right? You're, and then you put a vacuum cleaner on their face. Well, and then I have to take the mask off and put the mask on. So you lose seal. If you actually take the seal on and off, it's crumbled in their beard or in their lips or under their tongue. And yes, sublingual nitro does act much quicker than topical. But again, that's in controlled study, you know, lab patients. I think if you took an acute pulmonary edema patient that's dry as a bone, that you've got a BiPAP mask on, I don't think that uptake is going to be as quick. So again, this, these are all reasons behind why we made the change. What change did we make? Our protocol is for a one milligram IV push nitroglycerin dose, and you can repeat after five minutes for a total of two doses. Now, who gets it? The patients have to be both hypertensive and have respiratory distress. So it's got to be, it's a two-fold process. You've got to click two boxes. So how hypertensive are we talking? 160 or greater. And again... So there's only a systolic number. Only a systolic number in our protocol, yes. Again, we tossed that around. That's where we picked to start. Again, we're just rolling this out. So that's where we're starting. And the patient can't be the, go back to lecture one, it can't be the off my Lasix for three weeks, gradually gaining weight. I'm really short of breath when I get to the bathroom, but I'm knitting on my couch and my pressure's 180 over 110. Fine and no distress. No distress. Maybe gets a little a little short-winded when we go to the bathroom and she's telling you about her cats and her bowel movements and her cousin going to college and all those. So is she is she a candidate for sublingual nitro at that point? I think at that point, if you wanted to use sub lingual nitro in her that you would be totally within reason i think again going back to uh, the first half of the podcast the main point is for us to make sure we put these people in the right subgroups and she's clearly the chronic volume overload patient not the respiratory distress sick looking acute pulmonary edema so this is where we play sick or not sick exactly and i think you know who what is respiratory distress again that's going to be a clinical judgment we all have our picture of what respiratory distress is and or isn't. I think the easiest way to think about it is to consider it a pairing with BiPAP. Um, we're not going to put BiPAP on the little old lady who's been off her Lasix for three weeks, but in the acute pulmonary edema patient that we talked about in episode one, that was 
two hours of acute shortness of breath, markedly hypertensive, tachycardic, tachypnic, hypoxic, tripoding, diaphoretic. That's that's a different that's a different patient. And I think that one's pretty obvious. Again, you're walking in with the mask in your hand. In your other hand, going forward, after we've initiated our, our protocol change, mask in one hand and consider IV nitrobolus in the other hand. Again, don't forget the BiPAP because back to our sinking allergy, the BiPAP is the plunger. You know, we want to open the drain, which is after load production. We want to turn off the faucet, preload production. Both of those nitro is going to take care of, but don't forget the BiPAP. And also follow your post-administration blood pressures closely. I think that's, you know, that's going to be vital for, for your redosing. Again, one milligram IV push times one and may repeat in five minutes if greater than 160, just to reiterate there. So if we're being so aggressive with the IV nitrates, which sounds great, why aren't we getting the other things we see with aggressive treatment in the hospital, like Lasix or morphine? So we'll separate that into two. What about Lasix? Um, again, these patients may need Lasix. They may not. I think one of the slow C changes that's taking place in these acute pulmonary edema patients is the realization that they're not all volume overload, that some of this may be volume shift. And in fact, 50% or so of acute pulmonary edema patients are uvolemic. So you give those folks 40, 80 of IV push Lasix, and yeah, they may feel better in 30 minutes or an hour, but where are they in six hours? Right, they're super dehydrated. Is there any way for us to eyeball that in the field? No, not a good way. Um, I think, you know, maybe a, sil- a skilled ultrasonographer, if you had echo information, again, things that we're not going to have on the truck, you know, I, I, I think that's probably probably unrealistic at this point. It's, it's pretty tough to tell pre-hospital, even in the ED setting. And again, dehydration, absolutely hypotension, acute kidney injury from that dehydration, all risks when we're talking about giving somebody who's euvolemic or hypovolemic especially a sick euvolemic or hypovolemic patient, uh, a diuretic. Now, again, let's go back to granny that's been off her Lasix for three weeks or four weeks. It's got three plus lower extremity edema that's gained 22 pounds and that's, you know, 180 over 100. She will absolutely need Lasix when she gets to the hospital and it may be a clear indication for her. But, but that again, 20 minutes I have her in the ambulance isn't going to make a difference? It's not going to make a difference. And again, it's a different different sub subgroup there. That's the chronic volume overload patient, not the acute pulmonary edema patient. Gotcha. So that's part A of your question. Let's take part B, which is morphine. Morphine was, you know, first line with Lasix and nitro uh, when I trained and I'm not that old. But about 10 years ago, the ADHERE study came out and it suggested increased mortality with morphine in acute pulmonary edema patients. So it's... Why did it do that? There's a good question. Um, people that were morphine fans thought that it was really just a reflection that if you got morphine, you were sicker. Whether or not that's true or not, you know, we'd have to delve into the, the study details deeper than deeper than I'm familiar with. The original thought with morphine was that there was some vasodilatory effects and it would augment the nitro. I think we know that those are probably not clinically significant. It's not extinct yet. You'll still still see people using it, but I personally don't use it in my practice. Definitely don't have it in our pre-hospital protocols. So uh, I think it's probably on the order of the, you know, white rhino. There's a few still hanging out around there, but mostly headed towards extinction. So what do we do when we get to the hospital and they freak out when you tell them, I just gave this much nitro. So you gave a milligram of uh, nitro IV, pressure was 200. Five minutes later, pressure was 180. You gave an additional milligram IV. So total, you gave two, two. milligrams of, of IV nitro. And I think we will get some side eyes, um, no doubt. I don't think this is, you know, this is uh, definitely a, a rollout and a new idea and a new practice pattern for, for a lot of people. But let's do quick math. 
and I hate math, but you know, metric system is a little bit easier to think through this. So how much is a sublingual tad? The sublingual tad is 400 micrograms or 0.4 milligrams. Our uh, one milligram dose is a thousand micrograms. So a one milligram IV push dose is like giving two and a half sublingual tabs. And we were already giving two tabs. Right. And I think that anybody who's taking care of an acute pulmonary edema patient from pre-hospital setting into the ED setting can tell you that giving five tabs, which would be the equivalent of the second dose, is not uncommon and probably given double, even triple that at times for the ones that are really hyperdynamic and, and really sick. So the key in this is going to be picking the right patients who need both preload and afterload reduction. And to go back to the data that we, you know, that the foundation of this is built on, in the lead study, there was a 2%, 2% incidence of hypotension. Um, so we got to pick Got to pick the right patients. Getting get, getting good solid blood pressures and following those blood pressures is going to be really important. So that hit Lasix, that hit morphine, that hit questions about the doses. What other questions do we, any other significant questions we had during our CE, things things people, people ask about. The one question we did get pretty, pretty consistently across each of our educational sessions was a nitro spray. For those of y'all who have nitro spray out there, good on you, but it is quite a bit more expensive and it's shelf life becomes an issue. So here at MCHD, we don't carry spray. We And when Brad and I are having the discussion, we were talking strictly about sublingual tablets. Obviously, I think you probably have better uptake, better bioavailability, especially in a, in a dry tongue vacuum cleaner face patient with nitro spray. We don't have that here. If you do, your experience may be slightly different, but I still think you're going to get better, again, better dosing, quicker dosing with an IV push dose. The spray was also quite a bit more expensive and everybody felt they needed to prime the spray whenever they gave it. And so inevitably somebody sprayed it into the air conditioning and everybody got nitro that day. Yep. And that we don't need, uh, we don't need our paramedics falling out, uh, from, from pressures of 90 over 60 from plus still spraying there. You still have to take the seal off of the mask when you give it, no matter what. It, so and I think, I think the the maintenance of that seal is is as important as the preload and af afterload reduction. So that that brings us up to our kind of our wrap up. Let's go back through and touch on the high points, and we'll be on with our way today. In acute pulmonary edema, we got to turn off the faucet. We got to unclog the drain. We got to open the drain. So decrease preload, turn off the faucet, open the drain, decrease afterload, unclog the drain, use our positive pressure ventilation, uh, non-invasive BiPAP. Nitro is going to be our friend with both afterload and preload reduction. Uh, we got to get higher doses to get the afterload reduction. So that's really the that's really the reasoning for our change and for, and for this new protocol. Again, we didn't talk a lot about non-invasive details, BiPAP details here. We'll hit that at a later date. That's a that's a topic in and of itself, but we know that BiPAP and non-invasive ventilation and and uh, acute pulmonary edema patients saves lives. Um, Lasix is not going to be first line for us in the field. It's not really first line in the emergency department unless we know that they're volume overloaded. And again, that's a that's a different, tougher question for us to answer. And we know that half of these acute pulmonary edema patients are volume shifted and not truly total body hypervolemic. IV nitro boluses are safe in the ED setting. They appear to decrease the need for intubation, for ICU, for length of stay. And just to detour back into the study a little bit, you know, our protocol was written at one milligram Q5 minutes times two. Uh, the Levy study was two milligrams uh, Q2 to three minutes with really not a cap on dosing. I think they went up to 10 in several folks. So as we're rolling this out and sort of in uncharted waters here, we, we pulled that back. So we don't want to deliver hypotensive patients to our, to our local EDs. But I think that if we follow the data and we follow these patients and we see that there are patients that get two doses that are still hypertensive, I think there's probably room for us to potentially increase to a two milligram dose 
and increase the total number of doses. But we'll let the we'll let the data sort of guide us there. And we tried to start in a safe spot so that we didn't have a bunch of complications. And again, we got to pick the right patient. And so I think that goes hand in hand with being able to increase increase the dosing and the dosing frequency. Because if we're picking the wrong patients, then we're going to be in trouble. So we got to have respiratory distress. We got to have hypertension greater than 160. Got those two have to go together. We don't want to get the volume overloaded patients in there. And again, one milligram Q5 if systolic blood pressure remains greater than 160. So that, that about covers it for today. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Kevin. Yes, sir. I get it. This will be a new one for many of you. Please forward questions and concerns our way uh, for all the MCHD crews listening out there. Uh, please keep us informed of the patients that you're seeing, sort of the, the real-time aspects of this treatment protocol. And we'll talk to you guys again soon. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.